0: The sun has set and the chill of late winter day sharpens into the bitter cold of night. Vivian Walker has returned from a day of shopping and afternoon champagne with Gabrielle Blake. The hotel suite she is showering with her brother is empty. Quenston hat and coat are gone. As she goes to put her bags on the table, she sees the envelope. It is addressed to her in her brother's hand and lies on the floor with some hotel-emprey asleep under the door. Take off your shoes and pour yourself a drink. It's time for Neon Jezebel.
1: This episode of Neon Jezebel will continue in just a moment. But first, a word from our sponsor. Throughout history, brave men have answered the call of justice whenever the authorities could not. In America, we have the local vigilance committees. These modern-day Robin Hoods operate wherever crime does. They don masks so that the shopsters, lawbreakers, and gangsters of the underworld cannot exact vengeance upon their families. The last year has seen a sharp rise in crime in our fair city. The devil alcohol has a stranglehold on many of our citizens, a hold so tight that it will take more than a constitutional amendment to break it. It will take the courage and dedication of the men of our law enforcement agencies to exercise spirits once and for all. Answering this call is none other than the Silver Sabres. The Silver Sabres are the oldest and most storied vigilance committee in New York City. They not only uphold the law... They uphold the heritage and tradition of the Empire City itself. Their leader is Silver Star, who has the honor of being the only vigilante deputized by the state of New York. Anyone on the team can tell you, he's the brains of the outfit. The brawn is Silver Fist, standing an imposing 5 feet 11 inches tall and weighing in at 220 pounds, Silver Fist is impossible to miss. If I didn't know any better, I'd say it was Tom Jenkins under that mask. If a gangster gets lucky, he can escape Silver Fist. But he will never outrun Silver Streak, the fastest man in New York. He's almost as fast as Olympic champion sprinter Charlie Paddock. The two have even raced each other and are, pardon me, fast friends. And who's this beauty? Why it's none other than Silver Fox. She's no stenographer. She's America's favorite vigilantess. But gentlemen, don't get any ideas about letting her catch you. Silver Fox handles the apprehension of criminal women, because upholding American values means upholding common decency. And when the ladies are behaving themselves, she makes quite a mascot. Wowza. So if you see bootleggers or scofflaws in your neighborhood, tell your operator that you want to talk to the Silver Sabres. Help keep New York safe. With the Silver Sabers. And now, back to our show. Dear Vivian, it seems my promise last night was a bit hasty. I will not be returning to the hotel tonight. Please understand, I do this only because my return could put you in mortal jeopardy. This is most urgently important. If anyone asks you about my whereabouts, be as vague as you can about it. No mention of vigilance committees, certainly. Play up my indulgence in charming women. I go out. I don't tell you where, and you don't ask. I apologize. You are canny enough that you need no instruction from me. Just keep yourself seemingly ignorant of my comings and goings. Now fear not, I am going to explain. I mentioned last night that I was going to take a meeting with the Silver Sabres to discuss the matter of the masked virago. Perhaps they had information that was not public yet. Anything that could shed some light on the strange timing of her attack. After the meeting this morning, I had lunch with Edward and Michael, while you went off to gallivant about New York with Gabrielle. Edward called a strict moratorium on business talk, which suited me. God forbid he discover just how little I know about the company. I attempted to induce Michael to share a few stories about his life in Hong Kong. He told a few rather bland stories about drinking with friends. Once he had warmed up, though, he launched into a highly animated and excruciatingly dull description of the tea culture there. It's often said that a man needs a hobby, and I suppose rigorously ceremonial tea-drinking qualifies, but temple and arch... At least stamp collectors can be relied upon for a few stories of smuggling and assassination. Did you know there is more than one kind of porcelain? Because I do now. Once good etiquette allowed, I turned the conversation to the masked virago. Mostly I was hoping for a topic that would bring some life back to my mind, but I was also curious to see how Edward would treat the matter. It was a short conversation, however. Edward waved his hand and told me— He had talked to some colleagues, and they had recommended the services of a sort of private detective. He assured me that reliable people had assured him that not quite a detective was much more effective than the city police. Beyond that, he had nothing to say, and began talking about the possibility of smuggling whiskey down from Canada. It seems he finds the local rum runners distasteful and is hoping to find more respectable people with whom to violate the Constitution. Once lunch was finished, I said that I was in the market for a new hat, and Edward directed me to the concierge, which was in the lobby. That fellow gave me some recommendations and scribbled a few addresses on a bit of paper. As I was preparing to go, I saw someone I knew. He was standing at the front desk, evidently checking in. There were two men with him, both burly chaps that had the look of marines about them. It is difficult to describe the subtle and unique mannerisms that one earns after many years in a particular branch of the military, but I can tell you that a marine stands with a stillness so profound and unnerving that it is almost a relief when one charges you. I can only assume that the marines are in my acquaintance's employ. The man getting the keys from the desk was Benjamin Syme, head of the Atlantic Network. I know you did some reading on them, but I will note, so that it is fresh in your mind, that the Atlantic Network bills itself as a security company. They are not dissimilar to the Pinkerton Agency, though they have a somewhat broader scope and, miraculously, fewer scruples. We know that Edward Blake is a member of the OFF Society, and you said there was suspicion that Benjamin Syme was also. Well, that suspicion is confirmed as far as I am concerned. The trouble is that Benjamin Syme does not know me as Cranston Walker. Rather, he knows me as Jackson Edgewater. He already believes Edgewater to be a pseudonym. Were he to discover my true identity, we would have a very large problem that would demand immediate attention. I stuffed the addresses the concierge had given me into my coat and walked as quickly as I could for the front door. But he saw me. When I was nearly to the door, I glanced up at that great bronze thing above the entrance. In its reflection, I saw that Benjamin Syme was now tailing me. The fact that he wasn't calling my name meant that he was not interested in overtures. Whatever encounter he had in mind, it wasn't suitable for a hotel lobby. There was an empty taxi at the curb, and I was considering taking it, but then I saw a second waiting just behind it. No sense in that. I headed down the sidewalk, hoping to get lost in the crowd, but came upon a crosswalk much sooner than was favorable, and the policeman was waving cars through. So I turned down the block instead of waiting to cross. Unfortunately, I found myself on a featureless side of the hotel. No shops or alleys, nowhere I could lead this merry chase. In the rear window of a parked car I could see Benjamin still following me. The intersection ahead did not have a crossing guard, and I made a break across the street. It was an opportune moment to run, a pedestrian can't cross the road quickly enough with the way New Yorkers drive, and the last thing I wanted was to appear like a fugitive. Once across, I spotted a row of restaurants another block down. At the next intersection I pressed my way to the curb and waited for the cars to pass. I wasn't sure if Benjamin was still on me, but I wasn't ready to risk it. The neighborhood I had entered was adjacent to a number of nondescript office buildings. The eateries on this street clearly intended to serve the lunchtime needs of the office workers. If utilized properly, a restaurant is an excellent place to get lost in. I made a cursory scan of the facades, not wanting to look as if I was entirely unfamiliar with the area, and I saw one that carried a distinctly German surname across the top. That was my opportunity. As I reached for the door, I hazarded a glance back. Benjamin was closing in, still a 100 feet behind me. Inside, I breezed past the till and walked straight for the kitchen door. The easiest way to be invisible is to act like you are precisely where you are meant to be. It's not foolproof, of course, but it will get you quite far. It got me into the kitchen and halfway out the back door before anyone stopped me. A chef put himself in my path, and told me I couldn't be back there. He told me this in a thick German accent. So I answered him, in rapid German, that some lunatic was following me. He had shouted at me that I killed his brother in the war. I didn't want any trouble, I said, but the police don't like it if you run. The chef got a dark look of recognition on his face. It was clear that he was no stranger to persecution. I imagine the wartime was especially lean for him. After a moment, he nodded and pointed me towards the back door. I jogged out of there and into the alley. Once there, I jumped up to grab the ladder of a fire exit and hauled myself up. I didn't stop until I had reached the roof. From there, I could scan the main street. I caught sight of Benjamin Syme running down the block. No doubt, he was heading for the alley and hoping to get eyes on me again. His next move might be to check the roofs, I wagered. There appeared to be three distinct buildings in this block that all abuttered one another low walls delineated each property and there was a maintenance door on the far end i vaulted over one wall and made for the next then hid behind it there was yet one more wall before the maintenance door i sat there and waited i waited for 10 very long minutes and then i was satisfied that benjamin syme was nowhere around cautiously I stood up and was indeed alone on the roof. The maintenance door locked from the outside, so I had no trouble getting into the building. Back on the street, I got a taxi and headed for my original destination, the headquarters of the Silver Sabre Vigilance Committee. I've explained the situation, and they will be putting me up for as long as needed. Hopefully, it will not be long. I will write you again as soon as possible. Your brother, Cranston Walker. Podcasts are the newest and most exciting way to hear your favorite audio programs on the go, but you already knew that. What you may not have known is that the success and longevity of a podcast depends on you, our loyal listeners. If you've enjoyed the adventure, mystery, and heartbreak of this program, the best way to show your appreciation is by rating and reviewing our show on Apple Podcasts. These reviews make the show more visible on the Apple Podcasts main page which means that more people can discover what you already know. When you're in the mood for cozy noir adventure, nothing satisfies quite like Neon Jezebel. But it's up to you to let the world know. So why not take this moment to head over there now and rate and review? Afterwards, you can follow us on Instagram at Neon Jezebel Podcast, all one word. That's Neon Jezebel Podcast on Instagram. And now, we continue with our show.
2: Dear Bofa, I know this letter breaks protocol, and I'm sorry for that. However, I have just received an urgent message from the Red Silks. Father has hired a man named Benjamin Syme to apprehend the Virago. The letter included a full dossier on the man, which I will attempt to summarize here. Benjamin Syme is the director of a company called the Atlantic Network. They offer a variety of security-related services to their clients. The main thrust of their business is quite similar to the Pinkerton Agency. I recall you mentioning them and Grandfather clashing in California over the railroad. The Atlantic Network handles bodyguarding for a number of rich individuals. They have some political bent, as there are reports of them both opposing and supporting labor unions. A good deal of their trade is in document authentication as well. Mr. Syme gave a lecture two years ago about companies like his being the future of vigilance committees. Benjamin Syme comes from a moneyed New England family. The current generation of the Boston Symes consists of three brothers, Benjamin, Henry, and George. Henry Syme was recently elected as a senator representing Massachusetts. It says here that he won the election in a landslide. His opponent was a minister, but the minister was accused of kidnapping Henry's niece, Rosamond. It was a huge scandal, but no criminal charges were ever brought against the minister. The niece is the daughter of Dr. George Syme. George is the leading researcher on extradimensional affective disorder in America. His principal discovery is that a hormone called oxytocin is useful in preventing the effects of standing too close to a white demon orb. His conclusions are quite similar to the doctrine of Sun Shan. The niece, Rosamond, was a lecturer for some time. She wrote books and recommended regular orgasms to fortify the mind against a white demon orb. According to the dossier, Rosamond's methods are almost identical to Dr. Sun's, although the dossier also says that Rosamond is probably completely ignorant of Dr. Sun's work. The entire Syme family, including the Boston and Toronto branches, are heavily involved with the Order of the Fourth Fate, which would explain why Father has turned to the Atlantic Network. If the Virago has become an OFF concern, then Father's so-called vaccine project is bigger than we had suspected. I know the elders have been hesitant to entertain the notion that the vaccine project is an OFF design. Given what the Fourth Fate stands for, it does not make sense that they would be backing such a thoroughly scientific venture as eugenics. However, with the philosophical upheavals that have swept the world, it is not unthinkable that an ancient establishment like the OFF could be redefining its own mission. There is the possibility that Father and Benjamin Syme simply know each other through the OFF, and that the Order is not involved as an institution. So... We have two scenarios. The first I shall call the friendship scenario, and the second will be the order scenario. In the friendship scenario, Father and Benjamin Syme know of each other because they are both members of the Order of the Fourth Fate. Because of this connection, Father feels that Syme's Atlantic Network is best suited to apprehending the Virago. In the dossier, it says that most Atlantic Network operations are done by two-man teams. Larger operations may have as many as six. So in this scenario, we can expect no more than six individuals dedicating themselves to finding our friend. Six will be manageable for her. Should they succeed in apprehending her, they will turn the Virago over to the police. Our contingency for that is already in place. In the order scenario, however we can expect the Atlantic Network to function as a legitimate cover for the OFF to begin operating in the city at scale. Since we do not know how important the vaccine project is to the OFF, we can only guess how many of their operatives they would assign. It will almost certainly be more than six. With significant numbers, not only does that increase the likelihood of our friend being caught, it also decreases the likelihood that she will be turned over to the police. If the OFF means to incarcerate the Virago themselves, everything we have worked for will be in jeopardy. Now, as this operation is ultimately my prerogative, I think the best course of action is to behave as if the order scenario is the one we face. The most efficient way for us to avoid a dragnet is to move our schedule up. To that end, we will be enacting the White Tea Protocol. For the foreseeable future, you will remain in the house as much as possible. You must take every reasonable opportunity to investigate Father's study. We must know where the primary cache of harbenadine is. The virago will escalate from the delivery trucks to the yippity bottling plants. With any luck, one of them will have the bulk of the Habenadine. I know this is more dangerous for all of us, but it is less dangerous than continuing our investigation with a legion of OFF Jaegers bearing down on us. I have not forgotten your suggestion of delaying the shipments until the police can be involved. The white tea protocol is the last thing you wanted to attempt. Under the circumstances, though, I think you understand why I believe this to be our best option. I apologize for ordering you to do this. Intrigues like this are precisely why you wanted to leave Hong Kong. Yet, I do believe this to be our only way forward. Once the plot is exposed, we will have control of St. Moon, and there will be no call for these intrigues anymore. It is only this once. I make this solemn promise to you. Find the habanating Cash. I will be in the shop. Sincerely, Gabrielle Blake
3: Dear Diary, I have finally gotten some good news. In the midst of Percy trying to use the Virago attacks as an axe to fell the tree of vigilance committees, the Atlas has also been very closely reporting on another Saint Moon story. You will remember that I found an unsigned contract between Saint Moon and the Walker Corporation. Not long after the Virago attacks started, Vivian and Cranston Walker came to New York to finalize some kind of agreement between the two companies. Everything is being kept hush-hush for the moment, but Edward Blake has just called a press conference. Tomorrow afternoon, that contract is getting signed, and Blake will be making a statement outlining what the agreement means for his company, the city, and the entire country. That's lofty talk. And I convinced Percy to send me along to cover it. Of course, I'm not overly concerned with anything Edward Blake has to say. It's Vivian Walker I want to speak to. The Walker Corporation is one of those deeply nepotistic businesses that recalls the landed gentry of the old world. It was founded over a hundred years ago when the exiled French nobles of King Charles Island began to get seriously into the trade business. Since then, every governor, director, and chairman of the Walker Corporation has been in a direct bloodline. That tradition seems to be the central pillar in Vivian Walker's status as the current chairman. When her father, James, died, the company was supposed to fall to Cranston, Vivian's younger brother. However, he was off serving in the war. So Vivian was made acting chairman until Cranston returned to take up the mantle. That never happened, though. Cranston returned, of course, but he seems deeply disinclined to do anything resembling work. He has quite a reputation as a playboy back in Silkhaven, but he also has a tendency to disappear for months on end. Heaven only knows what he's doing then. Vivian became the official chairman last year, after Cranston signed the position over to her formally. She's a remarkable woman, and the more I learn about her, the more certain I am that I need to talk to her. For starters, her father James inherited the company from his brother Cecil. Cecil took over as chairman in 1890 and began attempting to expand the company into America. James remained in Silkhaven, attending to Day-to-Day Matters, while Cecil was maneuvering with the big fish in New York. Then, in 1903, Cecil's oldest son, whom everyone called Rooster for some reason, drowned during a family retreat. One article I found in the Montauk Tribune said that he was swimming in a lake when it happened, swimming with his cousin, Vivian. Unsurprisingly, the Montauk Tribune says that Vivian was unable to make a statement. No other papers mention her. It must have been terrible. Can you imagine witnessing your cousin drown like that? Rooster's death seems to have devastated the family. Cecil abandoned his ventures in New York and moved his family back to King Charles Island. It seems to have done little good, though as he committed suicide in 1908. His widow, Ethel, was from Ontario, and she took her three surviving children back there. It seems strange that she would separate herself from the family money like that. There must have been some very bad blood indeed between her and her late husband's family. Something I found interesting is that James Walker, like Edward Blake, married an immigrant. James's wife, Lolita Bac. Udova, emigrated to Silkhaven as a teenager with her brother, Peter. Somehow, Lolita got a job as a typist for the Walker Corporation. Her brother was killed by gang violence in 1882, and she married James a year later. Something about that feels important, but I cannot find anything suggesting a connection. James and Lolita were killed in a car accident in the summer of 1918, for reasons I can only guess at Cranston was not immediately sent home. Vivian was left with not a single family member to support her. Her mother's family was all in Russia, her father's family estranged, and her brother somewhere in France fighting the Kaiser. Vivian had been her father's secretary for over a decade, but still. A woman left to manage that grief and an international trading company all on her own. It bespeaks the kind of fortitude one expects of a queen. All of this makes me believe that Vivian Walker is a deeply sympathetic person. I cannot imagine that a woman who had endured so much, and the daughter of an immigrant no less, would approve of what Edward Blake is doing with his infant food and ladies near beer. I will be at that St. Moon press conference tomorrow, as will my dossier on this so-called vaccine project. Vivian Walker is going to learn the truth about her business partner and then we will see what sort of fury a queen can bring down Sincerely, Friday Johnson
0: Neons Isabel is written by Zachary Westbrook Gabrielle Blake is played by Susan Day Friday Johnson is played by Kristen Pimley Cranston Walker is played by Zachary Westbrook Announcement by me, Camille Faucon You can connect with us on Twitter at Pod, or on Instagram at Podcast. All of your episodes can be found on our website, neonsisabel.com.